This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Good morning. What an exciting week it's been. Tuesday, August 7th, primary election day in Michigan. Lots of results. I know everybody listening who really cares about Michigan politics has already seen all the figures. They've seen the list of winners. They've seen the statistics. Uh, We'll try and say a few things here today that'll make it a little bit interesting. Uh, Things maybe you haven't quite thought of or been aware of kind of put Tuesday in context. Uh, Let's start with turnout. I mean, phenomenal. Uh, An all-time Michigan record for a primary election uh, turnout in Michigan. Uh, We had over 2.1 million people vote. Uh, That is the most uh, in Michigan history. Uh, It's the highest percentage turnout, and it looks like it's going to be around 28 percent. Uh, since 1978, that's 40 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, we didn't have quite as big a population in Michigan. We didn't have as many registered voters, uh, but the turnout was, uh, higher in 1978 in percentage terms. And just so you can kind of do some comparisons in 1978, we had a big democratic primary for both governor and U.S. Senate that year. Uh, in the U.S. Senate, Carl Levin uh, was running against a bunch of other candidates for the Democratic nomination. He was president of the Detroit City Council at the time, and uh, he wanted to take on the incumbent Republican Senator Bob Griffin. And Bob Griffin uh, was uh, opposed in a Republican primary that same year by none other than Brooks Patterson who at that time was the Oakland County prosecuting attorney, later became Oakland County executive, which he still is today. Uh, for governor, um, the Republican incumbent didn't have a primary, but uh, there were four Democrats lined up to take him on in the general election, and uh, the nominee turned out to be Bill Fitzgerald, a Democratic state senator. Um, so those contests uh, at the top of the ticket drew a big, crowded uh, turnout of voters. Uh, obviously, there were a lot of the same offices up for grabs that year that there were this year for the U.S. House of Representatives, for uh, State Senate, uh, State House of Representatives. So it was a big year, uh, but this year actually surpassed that in total number of voters because we have more registered voters, slightly bigger population now, and uh, we should be proud of that. On the other hand, let's also consider this. When you get right down to a 28% turnout means that nearly three out of every four voters in Michigan didn't even bother to vote. So that's still not very good. Uh, We were 10% above where we were two years ago. We only had an 18% turnout in 2016 in our primary. So that's a big leap up and we ought to be proud of that. But is it going to go up another 10% in 2020? I don't think so. Um, We go back to 2014 just to give you an idea. 
Again, about turnout, the pattern over the years, 17.4% turnout in 2014. So that was even lower than two years ago. 2012, it was a little better, 19.7%, still not good. That means four out of every five registered voters in 2012 did not bother to vote. 2010, it was 21.9%. That's a pretty good turnout. In fact, that was the highest turnout in Michigan since uh, 2002, which was 23.3%. So you see the pattern. It hovers around 20%, sometimes below that, sometimes slightly above that. This year, we got up to almost 30%, and that's something to applaud. But let's not rest on our laurels. Let's try and figure out ways to make it even better coming on. And by the way, there are going to be a couple of ballot proposals this year, uh, particularly one called Promote the Vote, that could increase turnout in future years if those ballot proposals um, appear before voters on November 6th, which it looks like they are, and they are approved by the voters. Now, let's also talk a little bit about uh, predictions. You may remember last week, I made a bunch of p- predictions, uh, top to bottom, governor and U.S. Senate, U.S. House, state Senate, state House. Um, how did I do? Uh, was I on target? I actually think I did pretty well. Um, I picked winners in 61 different races where I felt that uh, the contest itself really would make a difference. It wasn't contest where an incumbent basically was unopposed or had uh, inconsequential competition uh, or had any genuine threat to be defeated um, or was running in a district that was so overwhelmingly Democratic or Republican that it wouldn't matter who the other party nominee merged uh, on August 7th. And so out of the 61 races I picked, by the way, there were in those 61 races, there were a total of like uh, 370 candidates. And uh, out of those 370 candidates, only 17% actually won. Uh, But I picked nearly 70% of all the winners that I uh, made predictions on, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, I was the only person, as far as I know, in the state who did that, who went out on a limb and tried to predict who was going to win these races. Make it clear, this wasn't uh, who I thought were the best qualified candidates necessarily. I certainly wasn't endorsing anybody. That's not my job. Who am I uh, to try to endorse anybody? Uh, That would be ridiculous. All I was trying to do, it's like picking winners in a horse race at a strange racetrack like uh, Hazel Park or Northville Downs in Michigan. Uh, You go to the racetrack, you see a bunch of strange horses, uh, you see their names, but that's about all you know about them. You've got a program, try and beef up on statistics. And uh, I basically felt uh, based on everything I'd read and heard about all these races, 61 races, uh, that a list of people that I picked out were going to win. I guess I feel best about my predictions at the very, what you might call top of the ticket. Uh, Obviously, uh, governor and U.S. senator weren't too tough to do. Um, I picked Bill Schuette for the Republicans. I picked Gretchen Whitmer for the Democrats for governor. Picked John James for the Republican U.S. Senate nomination. U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, I picked Alyssa Slotkin for the Democrats in the 8th District. Uh, in the 9th District, I picked Andy Levin 
to win, and he did um, for the Democrats in the 11th district, uh, which is uh, in western Oakland County, uh, western Wayne County. Uh, I picked for the Democrats Haley Stevens, and I picked Lena Epstein for the Republicans. They both won. And in the 13th district down in Detroit, this is where I really kind of gambled and went out on a limb. This is a Democratic primary uh, in a heavily Democratic district. So whoever wins the Democratic nomination in the 13th district in Detroit, that's to succeed John Conyers, who you may remember resigned his seat late last year. I pick Rashida Tlaib who is not African-American. She's Palestinian-American. Um, this is a, a majority black district, but uh, I picked Rashida Tlaib win, even though uh, it looked like things were set up for Brenda Jones, the president of the Detroit City Council, an African-American to win. Uh, and in fact, guess what? Brenda Jones did win the unexpired portion of the term of John Conyers, which was also on the ballot in a separate race for uh, really pretty complicated reasons. And if you want to hear an elaboration on that, you can go to the Friday morning podcast at theballingerreport.com. We talk about that. But for the full two-year term, the one that really counted, uh, Rashida Tlaib, a former state representative from Southwest Detroit, won, and I picked her. It was very close. Uh, less than a thousand votes, but she, she won. Um, in the Senate, I got, uh, 11 out of the 17 districts where I made picks. And in the house, uh, I got 26 out of 39 that I picked out of, uh, scores and scores of candidates, uh, for a lot of state house races. So, you know, <clears throat> it was a very exciting day. Um, a lot of exciting developments. Uh, we're going to have a guest later in the program, Mark Grebner, who's going to make a return engagement to the political insider. He was on a couple of months ago, uh, and uh, we're going to have him analyze uh, turnout as well and make a few observations. I'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and uh, I want to just put a few developments uh, from Tuesday in some kind of an historical context that a lot of people might find interesting. Uh, John James uh, won the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate for the right that is the correct expression, to take on Debbie Stabenow, the incumbent Democrat, in November in the general election. I say right because uh, many people think um, James's uh, victory on Tuesday is likely to be a what is called Pyrrhic victory, uh, one that uh, has not necessarily a lasting effect uh, and uh, it's kind of like uh, you win the battle, but are you really a serious challenge to win the war? And most people think that the Republican nominee, whoever it turned out to be, it turned out to be John James, uh, was not likely, is not likely to beat Debbie Stabenow in November. She's a very strong incumbent. Uh, she has a big lead in any polls that have been taken so far against whoever the Republicans might nominate. Um but, you know, nothing is certain in politics. We got three months to go. Anything can happen. Um, so John James uh, 
beat Sandy Pensler, who, by the way, spent something like five-plus million dollars of his own money to put up a huge avalanche of TV ads uh, that looked like they were going to bury John James uh, in the beginning of the contest. I mean, if we'd been talking two, three months ago, I think everybody would have said, who is John James? We don't even know he's running. And this Sandy Pensler is all over the uh, video waves. We see him every day in these ads, and he's just going to buy the nomination. But John James managed to raise or have raised on his behalf some $5 million by the end, and he actually pretty much got spending parity with Sandy Pensler. And John James got up on TV, and he was online, and he ran a very aggressive campaign. And then the key thing that happened Uh, 10 days before the election, uh, Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of John James. And it was kind of a game changer. Uh, Everything surged ahead for James at that point. Uh, Even though Pensler kept advertising on TV, James ended up winning by about 55% to 45%. It was about a 10%, maybe 9% uh, margin of victory. So he won handily. It wasn't a blowout, but he won handily. Um, who is John James? John James is African-American. Now, in the Republican Party, even though uh, the Republican Party is supposedly the party of Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves um, and should be viewed as a party favorable to civil rights and the rights of African-Americans, obviously that's not the case today in the electorate. Uh, the vast majority of African-American voters are Democratic. Uh, But John James becomes the first African-American of either major political party in Michigan to be nominated for the U.S. Senate. It's never happened before. Uh, There were a couple of times when it might have happened in 1976. We're talking about 42 years ago. You may remember Richard Austin was the uh, secretary of state of Michigan. He'd been elected twice. Um, He was a very highly thought of African-American auditor. Um, and he, uh, ran for the democratic nomination for the U S Senate against uh, a couple of other opponents. One of them, a guy named Don Regal, remember Don Regal, uh, U S representative at the time and another U S representative from Macomb County named Jim O'Hara. Well, to make a long story short, even though, uh, Richard Austin led in the polls early on, Don Regal ended up beating uh, Richard Austin and Jim O'Hara winning the nomination. So, uh, the Democrat, excuse me, the uh, African-Americans did not make a breakthrough that year. Then you go to 2006. Now, this is only 12 years ago. Uh, you had uh, Reverend Keith Butler, who was an elected member of the Detroit City Council. He ran for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate uh, against the uh, Oakland County Sheriff, Mike Bouchard, who was white, and uh, Bouchard beat Butler for the nomination. Uh, Bouchard went on to lose uh, the general election to Debbie Stabenow, who uh, was seeking her second term. Uh, But, you know, that was the last best hope for the Republicans until this year. Now, John James becomes the first African-American of either party to be nominated for the U.S. Senate. So let's see what happens. He's an Iraq war veteran. Um, he went to West Point. Uh, he is a successful businessman, uh, running a, uh, a multi million dollar business in Detroit for his family. Uh, 
he has a really uh, fascinating profile. Uh, he's a charismatic figure, and uh, I just like to see him get a debate with Debbie Stabenow. Debbie Stabenow's managed to avoid even debating her opponents uh, for at least a dozen years. Pete Hookstra was a Republican nominee in 2012, and, and he didn't get a debate with her. I think it's going to be hard for Debbie Stabenow to say, no, I'm not even going to bother to debate an African-American Iraq war veteran. I think that's going to be tough. But if John James does get in a debate with Debbie Stabenow, how's he going to do? How's he going to perform? Is it going to look like he's ready for prime time? Uh, will she run circles around him? I mean, the bar will be set low because he's a first-time candidate. He's never run for anything before. Uh, if he does better than expected, I think it's really going to help him. So we'll see what happens. Now, let's look at the governor's race for a second. You know, there have been only three times in Michigan history where you had the same situation that you had this year. This, this year was one of the three times. The other two times were 1982 and 2002. And in all three of these cases, what you had was a long-serving Republican governor leaving office. Uh, in the first case in 1982, William Milliken, who served a record 14 years, a uh, record that will probably always stand, it's the all-time record, chose not to run for re-election. Um, in 2002, John Engler served three four-year terms, that's 12 years, uh, he was limited by term limits. He could not run again in 2002, whether he wanted to or not. And this year, uh, 2018, we know that Rick Snyder, who was elected in 2010 and served two four-year terms, uh, he uh, couldn't run again. He was limited. And in each case, uh, their lieutenant governors, Millikens, Englers, and Snyders, all ran to succeed them. In 1982, it was Jim Brickley. Uh, in 2002, it was Dick Posthumus, and in 2018, it was Brian Kelly. Now, in 1982 and 2002, uh, and 2018, you had different results. The only one of the three to win was Posthumus in 2002, and then he went on to be defeated by Jennifer Granholm by about four points in the general election. In 1982, Brickley was the favorite going into the race, but he lost narrowly to Richard Headley, who then lost to Jim Blanchard in the general election. And this uh, year, Brian Kelly, we already know, lost on Tuesday. He wasn't the favorite going into the race, unlike Brickley and Posthumus. And he ended up being pretty well blown out by Bill Schuette, the attorney general. So he will not continue. So that's the, the track record so far. It's a little bit up and down. There's some similarities. There's some dissimilarities. Uh, we're going to come back in a minute. We're going to talk with somebody uh, who will have his own take on what's going on uh, in Michigan politics right now, looking ahead to November 6th, based on what happened on Tuesday, August 7th in our primary. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back and we've got our promised special guest today, uh, Mark Grebner, the first person on The Political Insider ever to be asked for a return engagement. Welcome, Mark Grebner. Uh, thank you for having me on. 
And uh, Mark is the uh, longtime leading list broker in Michigan and still chief cook and bottle washer at Practical Political Consulting uh, in Lansing. He's also an elected uh, Ingham County Commissioner. And I want to start by asking you, Mark, um, I think when you were on before, we talked about projected turnout and uh, you were mentioning that, you know, the number of absentee ballot requests statewide was well up this year from what it had been um, a, a couple of years ago, especially four years ago. Um, and the number of return ballots was way up. And you were estimating, if I remember correctly, you correct me if I'm wrong, you thought, you know, the turnout could be as high as 1.8 million, you said. And it turned out that the tur- the turnout was like 2.1 million. I think this is the all-time record in actual number of people who voted. I think going back to 1978, the percentage wasn't maybe quite as high as 78, but it's been the highest this year since then in 40 years. Um, how do you read the turnout numbers? I mean, what happened that was surprising to you if it was surprising? Well, um, I was kind of half thinking that it could be as high as two million. I don't know if I mentioned that in your show or on others, but uh, but two point one was outside even the range of my wildest uh, uh, conjecture. The f- the first thing to take into account is that there were interesting primaries on both sides. The gubernatorial primary on both the Democratic and Republican side was the sort that actually draws marginal voters to the polls. So unlike other elections where only one side has had uh, an interesting race or sometimes neither side has, it, at least there was a reason for everybody to vote. So that, that pulls it up toward the upper end of the range of possible turnouts. But, but that wouldn't have gotten us above 1.8. Um, the reason we had such a large turnout really, in large part, was that a lot of people feel motivated. There were, there were local races to pull people out in many places. There were really hotly contested, and that also added, you know, maybe 50,000 or 100,000 people to the turnout. But ultimately, a lot of people voted because they just are enthusiastic, excited, or maybe distressed about the state of politics in the country, and really just felt, even though it had nothing to do with what is causing their distress, that they had to go vote. When you talk about local races, uh, would they just be... uh candidate versus candidate contest. What about ballot proposals? Uh, the MERS newsletter estimates there were over 800 ballot proposals on the ballot. Uh, I know those maybe don't pull many voters out usually, but maybe that was also a factor. Um, it may have been, but I don't think that it was uh, uh, unusual for a, an August primary. I mean, I've, I haven't seen a tally compared to other um, uh, similar years. But there wasn't anything, for example, in the city of Detroit that was really a, a barn burner of a ballot proposal or a countywide substantial tax increase in a large county like Kent or Oakland. Instead, you had lots and lots of millages to uh, renew the fire protection in some township or to pay for improving roads in a small city. Um, and, and so, sure, there were, there were specific people who probably voted mainly because they really are worried about getting the roads repaired in Lyon. But I, I, I don't think that gets you to, you know, into the 2 million range. 
Right. And by the way, an overwhelming uh, percentage of those proposals passed, something like 94%, really kind of incredible. Uh, let me just ask, have you had a chance to look at the pattern of turnout? Was there a pattern uh, that manifested itself on Tuesday? I mean, like I've heard, for instance, that Oakland County in particular had a big, big surge. I mean, up like maybe 35% turnout uh, compared to 2014, whereas maybe in other parts of the state, it wasn't anywhere near as high. Well, I think wherever there was an interesting Democratic primary, uh, turnout was especially large. I think that the Democrats were just susceptible to being pulled out all over the state. Um, I haven't I haven't actually got the precinct by precinct uh, detail yet. Won't have that probably for weeks. But, but my general um, perception is that Democrats were just apt to turn out. And that's, I think, why ballot proposals fared especially well, since in general, Democrats, I mean, every ballot proposal is different, but are more likely to be willing to support tax increases in exchange for services. And so tipping the balance toward uh, liberals and Democrats in a, in a August primary, which is usually predominantly a Republican turnout, tipping it toward the Democrats certainly helped your average uh, school bond issue, uh, road improvement, millage, that sort of thing. Yeah, I noticed that back in 2010, Mark, I think the Republicans turned out like two to one better than the Democrats did. Uh, the, the Republicans had over a million uh, turnout in 2010. That was the year Rick Snyder got the nomination. Uh, and Democrats only had something like 550,000 uh, turnout Democrats this year, like doubled their turnout. They were over 1.1 million and Republicans actually were down a little bit this year from 2010. I think they were down to something like 985,000. It was still pretty good. And the two combined made this 2.1 million plus figure that we're talking about. So doesn't that indicate a lot of, as you've been saying, democratic energy out there, uh, anger, frustration, excitement, whatever you want to call it, whatever motivation. And I guess the next question is, how does that carry forward into November? Does it necessarily? Well, in the first place, I'd like to dissect your uh, question a little bit. You, you ask a question without actually pausing, let me answer it. <laughs> the, the, the Democratic turnout is, is way up from 2010, but there are three different components of that. One is that in 2010, a substantial number of Democrats disappeared and became Republicans, as far as the tally, because they voted in the Republican primary, largely for, for Rick Snyder, because the Republican president, or gubernatorial primary was a lot more interesting than ours was, which, if you recall, was Andy Dillon and Verge Bernero. Um, whereas uh, uh, Snyder seemed to be a much more centrist candidate than the rest of the Republican field was. So Democrats uh, uh, showed up in the Republican column, I don't know how many, maybe 100,000, which probably was enough to provide Snyder's margin of victory. Secondly, uh, the, the Democratic turnout was bad because it was depressed by national events and also by lack of an interesting field. And... Uh, uh, I'm blanking on the third component, but but what I'm saying is that the the that the difference in tallies isn't simply well. A piece of it was that a substantial number of people 
changed their party identification in their minds. There were just plain more Republicans in Michigan in 2010 than there are today. I mean, a bunch of people who thought of themselves as Republicans then no longer now probably think of themselves as independents. And a bunch of people who thought of themselves as independents in 2010 now consider themselves dem-leaning. So you put those three together, and that's how you, you have this substantial change in the number of people voting. It's not simply that more Democrats turned out, but, but a bunch of people changed and a bunch of people kind of dissembled what they were. Uh, but still, this is, a, this is a very impressive turnout. And, and you have to figure going forward for the Republicans to look around and realize that in a, in a pretty neutral election, let's say you could vote either Republican or Democratic and have something to vote on, there was no particular, I don't think there was any rating by one party like we did, the Democrats did in 2010 in voting the Republican primary. So in a neutral election like this, for there to be more Democrats than Republicans voting, given that, again, in a typical primary, the Republicans are more likely to turn out because they have just generally better turnout characteristics. You, you put that all together, and it's a pretty remarkable showing by Democrats, and Republicans ought to be worried about it because it's only three months to the general election. Right. We're going to take a break here, but we'll be back in a couple of minutes with our special guest, Mark Rebner of Practical Political Consulting. Hold on. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back with Mark Rebner of Practical Political Consulting, and I want to ask Mark, uh, who just broke off the last segment by uh, projecting ahead to November and what the turnout is likely to be then based on what happened this past Tuesday, August 7th in the primary. And I just want to ask you, uh, is there a pattern over time that you can look at and say, well, you know, based on the uh, aggregate party turnout in an August primary, uh, we can be pretty sure it's going to break down similarly in November or that maybe there is a change uh, and maybe reasons for that change in the three-month period of time. What do you think and what do you think is likely to happen this year? Well, in the first place, this election was, a, as I was saying, it's a fairly neutral election. You could vote either Democratic or Republican. So I think the typical voter largely expressed their partisan views in the primary they chose to vote in. So I think we have a kind of account that there were whatever, 1.1 million Democrats and just over 900,000 people who were Republicans who wanted to go vote. I mean, that's probably a pretty good census of, of people motivated to vote in this primary. The general election is going to have, I've already been wrong about the first one, the primary, so I guess I should be hesitant about saying for the general. But I guess the general election is going to have 3.2 or 3.3 million voters. So we're only talking about pulling in just over 1 million more people. But does that wait? Let me just stop you right there. How how does three point two or three point three compared to let's say two thousand fourteen, two thousand ten, other gubernatorial elections? A little bit more. It's a little bit more. I'm guessing the typical gubernatorial election has two point eight to three point one million voters. Okay. And I'd say, just my gut feeling, that we're going to see more like three point three million this this time. Well, 
Well, that additional million that is pulled to the to the polls, there's a slight predominance of Democrats among them, and then that's because Republicans overall have the characteristics likely to cause them to vote. Republicans are older, which correlates with better voting. They're more likely to be homeowners. They're less likely to have moved recently, and so on. And so all those factors together say that when you have a small turnout election, it skews a little bit Republican. And as the turnout rises, as you keep adding additional voters to the electorate, the people you're adding are more Democratic, not overwhelmingly. So if you get up to a presidential turnout, around 5 million, you've added uh, maybe maybe 57% of the people you're adding to the electorate above 2 or 3 million. About 57% of those people are Democrats, which is why it's, it's relatively tough for Republicans to win Michigan statewide. I mean, Donald Trump did it by just squeaking through in a kind of a miraculous year for the Republicans. But that gives you an idea. I mean, Democrats have won in blowouts in presidential years when they win. So if we go from this the 2.1 or 2.2 million we just saw to maybe 3.3 million, there were probably an additional 100,000 or 150,000 Democratic uh, votes advantage in that additional million. So Democrats have already shown that they have a maybe a 200,000 vote advantage in this first 2 million, and we'll see maybe a 300,000 total advantage out of, let's say, 3.3. And that's, that's consistent with my gut feeling. that The Democratic baseline, by which I mean the average Democratic vote of the two-party vote at the bottom of the ticket for State Board of Education or Wayne State Governor, will be about 55%, which is a very big hill for Republican candidates to climb statewide. Right. Uh, let me throw in one thing more. It's kind of interesting to me that I just read. Uh, Murr's newsletter, uh, published in Lansing, uh, did an analysis, uh, kind of curious uh, to me, I'd never seen it done before, where they went back and uh, looked at the turnout uh, district by district for the state Senate and the state House of Representatives. And they looked at, you know, 2014, 2010, and they looked at how many districts had more Democrats turnout than Republicans and how many the reverse uh, districts had more Republicans turnout than Democrats. And then they told them up. Uh, to see uh, what it looked like going into the general election and what the result was going to be in terms of the actual winners in the general election. And it was really kind of amazing that, uh, for instance, the majorities that the Republicans uh, won, 63 to 47 in 2010, I think it was still 63, 47 in 2014, uh, the vote totals district by district were almost exactly that in the August primary. In other words, Democrats had more votes cast in 47 districts in the August primary and Republicans had more votes cast in 63 districts in the August primary in those two years. And this year they are projecting that using that same model, uh, the Senate is going to end up 21-17 Republican, 21 Republicans, 17 Democrats. The House is going to end up still under the control of Republicans, but only 56-54. And that's compared to 
The Republicans now still have a basically 63-47 majority in the House. In the Senate, they have this huge uh, two-thirds majority, 27 to 11 uh, margin, and they'd be down to 21-17, meaning that they're going to lose six seats in November. How do you uh, parse those numbers? Do you agree with that analysis? Do you think it makes sense, or is it a freak? Well, I don't think it will be a precise predictor. I think that they happen to, you know, that... That you, Yogi Berra once said something like, "It's really hard to predict, uh, make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> Predicting the past isn't so hard." And and they found an indicator that happened to to precisely match from the primary to the general. I don't think there's a tight link, but I think that overall, you know, it, it's roughly right. If if you just include uh, more uncertainty than they've given there. I, I use that same sort of a measure as I'm looking at the partisanship of various districts. The, the places that have shifted toward the Democrats are largely upper middle class. Uh, the, the, the biggest shifts have occurred among college-educated white voters, and that's true nationally, but it's also true in the election statistics we just saw. So the places like Birmingham and East Grand Rapids, the Gross Points, uh, the city of Traverse City, um, we're, we're seeing substantial shifts in the, in this case, uh, from previous primaries to this primary that the Democrats have picked up, the Republicans have dropped back, um, college towns, uh, and, and places that, that your, your doctor lives. Well, uh, and, and I expect that those are the places, especially the Republicans are going to have problems. We're almost out of time. One last question question, if you can make a quick comment, East Lansing income tax uh, defeated uh, when it was on the ballot, uh, you know, like a year ago, all of a sudden now it passes. Why? Well, every, every election has its own little weird twist. I think in East Lansing's case, it was not part of a national trend, but uh, basically the voters think that East Lansing was badly run, which it is. Um, but on the other hand, they also felt like they'd punished them once, and now the city really is desperate for money, and they have to give them the money. So, I mean, I think a lot of people who voted no before just threw up their hands. I've compared this to bailing their alcoholic uncle out of jail. The first time he calls, you hang up on him, but the second time you drive to the county seat with a $500. <laughs> Very good. Just one last question to you. Anything else from Tuesday or anything else you want to say based on what happened on Tuesday or what you think may happen in November? Well, I just think it's an important observation that there are no anti-Trump Republicans. And the main reason is not that all Republicans have fallen in behind Trump, but because Trump has redefined the Republican Party and the people who don't like him have ceased to be Republicans. Similarly, there are no pro-Trump Democrats because the people who voted for him and support him have left the Democratic Party. And it looks to me in both cases like those shifts are pretty much permanent for those people, that Trump has really redefined the nature of partisanship in the United States. Do you see the same thing happening nationally? Uh, Michigan just a microcosm, or are we a little bit of an outlier? No, I think that's exactly what has happened everywhere. And that's the reason that after all of these uh, uh, disasters in the Trump administration, that 85 and 90 percent of Republicans still support him enthusiastically. It's not that those Republicans that existed five years ago are, are actually that unwilling to change. 
it's that many of them changed by simply stopping their self-identification as Republicans. So that the people who are now Republicans support Trump because they're self-selected. And, and Trump has really permanently redefined partisanship. I think history is going to look back at this and look at this as a change in the nature of the party system in the United States. Very cogent observations from Mark Grebner of Practical Political Consulting. Uh, I want to thank you very much, Mark. Great job. Uh, we'll have you back again. Thank you. That'd be a third time. Absolutely. And it could come quicker than you think. <laughs>